0: Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zaslavsky. Let's talk about identity today and changing the cultural narrative around what's taboo and what can feel as natural as small talk about the weather. This is episode number 105. Yes, yes, my friend. And yes, that's a different greeting than my more common yo-yo or buenos ding dong diddly dios." I just have to say I'm grateful for your ears, time, and attention right now. I plan to put them all to good use. You are certainly going to hear a lot of yeses in this episode where I bring back my guest and friend from episode 28 Charlie Gilkey. He and I had a chat that neither of us saw coming or could have even possibly dreamed of a month ago. You know, I thought we might focus on things like how Charlie decides what kind of personal or professional experiments to run, how to get better at asking for help, yet this whole episode turned out into an experiment I didn't know I was running until about halfway through it. The, the type of dialogue, the topics of dialogue... Everything from overthrowing cultural belief systems to institutionalized racial discrimination. It's not exactly something I've touched before, at least not on this show, but sweet, sassy, molassy, I am glad we did, and I'm pleased as punch that Charlie went there with me. You'll understand what we mean by went there in a moment. I'll soon be continuing this conversation with Charlie in person between August 11th through the 15th, 2016, as I make my annual pilgrimage to Portland, Oregon, Charlie's home city, for the World Domination Summit. I did a whole episode on WDS, as it's commonly referred to, back on uh, Smart and Simple Matters 54 Charlie, though, he is a magnet for amazing, world-changing, these uh, dialogue-shifting people. And I'm going to take any chance I can get to surround myself with his kind of people who happen to also be my kind of people. Let's concentrate on the here and now, though. Because me and Charlie in July 2016, you, whenever you happen to be listening to this episode... And the state of historical and current events that suggest we have a long way to go before reconciling, as Charlie states, that we are multidimensional people living in a multi-dimensional society inside of a multi-dimensional world. We start the conversation by talking about how to avoid fighting with white space and why co-creation is so rewarding. Then we rapidly shift past why Charlie's goal in life is to become a professional thought partner into the big, potentially scary, and absolutely meaningful heart of our chat. Possibilities of conversations around race, discrimination, self-identity, cultural assumptions, all this other equally deep stuff. It's, it's going to take some seriously awesome visual thinking to create lasting change in how we see and treat each other, but this seriously awesome audio, this real-time riffing also has a role to play. As Charlie would say in his The Creative Giant Show podcast, let's do this. And uh, as I like to say in this show, here we go. Although I've been known to ramble on like a Led Zeppelin song, my guest for this episode is much more likely to be eloquently concise or jam on an acoustic guitar than I ever will. I'm honored to have Charlie Gilkey back for round two on Smart and Simple Matters for, uh, for many reasons. For example, he's a best-selling author, super-duper speaker, facilitator, podcaster, and business strategist... His uh, sweet website, Productive Flourishing, all those tools, worksheets, and planners gets more visit than a giant underground ant colony. And Charlie does things above the board, of course, which helps when you're teaching thousands of folks like he does how to go from idea to done using simple, powerful approaches that harness our inner strength and zone of genius. Charlie, my friend, welcome back to the show.
1: Joel, thanks so much for bringing me back, and thanks um, for listeners. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm recovering from a little bit of a sickness, so if you hear me sniffle or you hear me kind of be nasally, that's what's going on, but we're still jamming nonetheless because this is fun stuff.
0: Whether you're at 73.2% or 99.9%, it's awesome. And always a gift to me and to everybody else. Well, I'm going to skip the seeds of awesomeness, which is where I normally start a conversation because we've already done that. If people want to get it, they can go back to episode 28 and they can listen to your seeds. And perhaps we'll get into some of the, the backstory story that you have. But I thought as we were going back and forth over email and figuring out, hey, let's do this again. What should we talk about? I pitched you on a couple of cool ideas. And one of them was co-creation. And not just co-creation in general terms, but co-creation in business and community life. So for me at least, and I think for you too, Charlie, co-creation, it's, uh, it's almost an identity, kind of a way of life. And th- that kind of thing, being able to build with someone or a bunch of someone's, for me at least, is more fulfilling and life-giving, more rewarding. Then secluding myself in some kind of creative hideaway and then coming back out and being like, hey, everybody, I was gone for four months, but look at this thing that I did. It's now ready for the sunlight. So very few people besides me actually use that word co-create, but I've seen it a number of times in your Productive Flourishing website. Just to start us off, what is the role of co-creation in your life? And you don't have to limit it to your classically creative life or what you call creative giants on Productive Flourishing.
1: So we have this idea in our culture about creativity. We have many ideas about creativity, but one of them is that this one person goes into that cave and creates something and comes out and there's this monument that they have made and they are awesome, right? And when you really look at how a lot of people create, it's not like that at all. Um, There's people who are going back and forth. We have editors, we have thought partners, we have conversationalists, we have all these people around us that are... Um, giving our creative products a little bit of seed, they given they're given a little bit of air, they're given a little bit of water. That helps it come alive. And so I think at a certain point, co or co-creation is actually much more of a default than creation. But I think the way that I that I go about using it is instead of saying, "Hey, I'm going to go create something by myself and then come out and have someone look at it," I now really look at ways in which, really early in the process, I'm like, "Hey, I have this idea." What do you guys think about this? Does someone want to help me with this? Who can I bring in to help me make this idea better or to push further along? So on and so forth. And you mentioned a lot of the really great reasons. It's more fun. It's more fulfilling. It's more meaningful. But the other thing about it is it's also much more um, productive, right? Your output increases significantly because you're – not going through the fight of the white space with, with whatever you're dealing with. You know, they're like, oh, I've got an idea. And then you like run to write about it. And then that white screen looks back at you and you can't get started. <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, what, what do I do? Right. And so it, it avoids that sort of problem. It also avoids the problem that when you go with the soul creation model, if you're say sick, or if you're not feeling it that day, or if you're stuck in your own head trash, That product doesn't move it, that that project doesn't move anywhere. But when you're in co-creation with other people, they could lift some of that load for you because they might be feeling really excited that day. And they could say, Hey, let's let's do this. Let's move it forward. And, you know, you can let go of and let it go forward. And so both in the sense of it's it's easier to get things started. It's easier to get through that saggy middle of any project where you just really wonder what the hell you started and why you did it and oh God, this sucks and what's gonna go on. And it helps at the end when, like, you're getting close to what I call the creative red zone, right? Kind of like in football where, like, so many football teams lose.
0: They get to the 20-yard line and then you're like, oh. They get to the 20-yard line it's like, couple oh. Of penalties, maybe I'll settle for a field goal. And I just missed the field goal, actually. I didn't get any points out of this. I
1: didn't get any points. I worked my tail off and got there. So it helps you get through every stage of the project so much easier because you have allies that are part of it with you. And all the stuff that comes up with creative work. So on and so forth. And so you can look at it in terms of projects, but you can also look at it in terms of how you build business teams. For instance... Um,
0: well, hey, Charlie, and- before we get there, can I, there's just a couple of things that you said. I love mm-hmm. the terminology you use with allies, thought partners, head trash. So actually, I would love to talk about just the the intersection of those two things. So first of all, I don't think anyone ever thinks of another human as a thought partner, at least I've never heard anyone talk about that before, and then dealing with your own head trash. What is the role of a thought partner in your life, and how does it help you reconcile all the craziness going on up there?
1: Yeah, so thought partners, um, broad. I actually have a client who... uh, I could go on a long story, but some people actually have a professional role called a thought partner, and I think it's funny, right? Um, I think it's a. I was like, "That's my that's my goal in life is to be a professional thought partner." Um, but that that's neither here nor there. But the okay. thought partners is just someone who um, really helps you helps clarify your thinking. Um, you get together, you discuss ideas, um, you you jam on different things like that. So you you likely have thought partners in your life. You just don't call them that, right? Um, and the thing about it is the world is always so much bigger than we think it is. Possibilities are so much grander than we think they are. And when we're just one person thinking about something, we're always going to approach it from our own limited frames, our own limited ways of seeing the world. And when you have really great thought partners that can both challenge you and support you at the same time, they add in their perspective to things that makes the world and the possibilities that much bigger so you see the world broader and you can question assumptions like for instance I was over this last weekend I was hiking or we were walking with someone and I was talking about how with some of the endeavors that I'm doing I'm really trying to set up the next generation of um, people who are going to be able to solve some of the problems or the environmental problems that we're going to face so on and so forth because not that my time is done but like when you look at over the history, over people who have been able to make significant impacts on there. By the time they've accrued enough resources by the time they're, you know, 30 or 40 that they're already starting to make those changes. And that hasn't been on my track. I mean, the guy's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that because, you know, I think we're starting to see more people who are in their 55s and 60s and so on and so forth that are able to make some of those changes, like the world has changed. And I was like, well, damn, I need to rethink that assumption. And so in that, in that place, he was serving as a thought partner, to to what I was saying. And so um, they're just people that you, that you pull around yourself that can provide that good sense of perspective. Um, sometimes it's a subject matter expertise that, you'll, that they'll pull in. But um, the, the great thing about thought partners are they're not the people that will question um, whether you'll be able to do something. They're the people that question how you're going to do it. And that's a huge distinction. Because if you're trying to convince people that you're going to be able to do something, then you're fighting the wrong battle in a lot of ways, as opposed to like, hey, here's what I want to do. Here are some different ways I might do that. And they're like, oh, you might want to think about this. You might want to think about that, so on and so forth.
0: Well, what are you thinking about right now as far as creating grander possibilities, whether it's without your traditional thought partners, whether that's Angela, your wife, or other people? Do you have some cool adventures in co-creation that you've been on? Uh, Sometimes you're the spark. Sometimes you're stoking an existing fire. What's exciting you right now?
1: So part of what's exciting me right now is starting, I don't know what I want to call it yet, Um, making a difference in some of our conversations around race and identity and um, oppression and things like that. I I think with where we are, and this this is for those of us in the United States, we've gotten into a situation to where we legitimately cannot talk about these things. Um, and it's not helping anything at all. Right. Um, and I'm looking at the different frameworks in which ways people talk, the different claims, so on and so forth and saying, okay, there are other ways in which we can approach this topic because if we're not talking, if we're not building teams of people with diverse perspectives, if we're not actively looking to solve some of these problems, then, We're just going to continue to have the same problems over and over again. And though, Joel, you and I have grown up in certain systemic um, elements in our society, I don't want your kids to grow up with that same sense of, um, with the the same conversations. I don't want them to be 30 years old and be just as frigging stuck in this conversation as you and I have been because of the way that these um, conversational lines have been drawn. So I'm really excited about that. It's a challenging thing. Obviously, it's going to take a long time to do, right?
0: Understatement of the year right there. Um, Challenging to change the dialogue around hundreds of years of systematized, institutionalized discrimination and taboo around what we can and can't talk about. Where where are you starting then? Can you give us just an example of besides the amazing, thoughtful and compassionate posts that I see from you on Facebook – and some good stuff on Medium. I'm going to link to Medium, to your what you're writing there in the show notes. Because, dude, it's good stuff. But where, where are you beginning right now? This is a decades, potentially decades-long thing that could be going on.
1: Um, see, that's the funny thing. Like, I'm beginning with myself and the people that are around me. And I'm beginning with opening up the conversation to... Um, allies and allies has a, is a special term in that in that place, but I'm just calling people allies in general, right? Um, and saying, look, there here are some ways that we can um, deburr some of this conversation and make it less contentious and talk and show up as people. And um, you know, that's that's really the the place that I'm starting. And it sounds obvious, but you know, somewhere in the last couple of weeks, I realized because I've had that problem. Where the hell? Well, there are different challenging aspects about being a person of color talking about this anyways, right? Um, But I had the same sort of thing. Like, where the hell does one start with that, right? And And how much context
0: do you need to give people in order for me to understand the weight of your words and what they can mean to me? There's a lot of nuance and maybe subtext that I need to get first before I can just say, I mean, I know your backstory, Charlie. We've been friends for years now. So when Mm -hmm. you write something... I can read it and I can say, okay, from what I know about Charlie, I can process it in this way. And I know that it's done with this kind of thought. And, but for folks, I guess I like where you're starting, which is with yourself and with the people who are immediately around you. I think that's probably the best thing to do in pretty much anything that you're playing with or experimenting with. Uh, and you mentioned some ways Just in the time, the brief period of weeks that you've been experimenting with the change in how you're trying to, how much you're putting out in the world, what type that you're writing about and speaking about, have you seen some initial successes or little wrinkles? Absolutely. Yeah, I
1: I get a lot of Facebook messages, I get emails, you know, I get people who pull me aside because I pull me aside and say, thanks for that, like I, that made me, um, reconsider either some things that I were thinking or that gave me permission to enter the conversation uh. in ways that I had not. Cause I felt like I had to know all this context and background and I had to read all these books and I had to know all these terms and, you know, um, before I could even start. And I'm like, well, if we're all feeling like we got to prepare to climb a mountain, <laughs> right. Every time we have a conversation, like we're all tired and busy and stuck. And that's not helping things. How can we make it such that it's just like having any other conversation? How can we make it such that we can say, you know what, we see the, I see the world this way. How do you see the world? And the way that you see the world is just as valid as my, right? And then we can talk about, we can go from there. So I think, you know, we can spend a long time on this particular topic, obviously, but I think that's the thing that, that we have to worry that we have to really look at is to what degree have we so made this such a sticky, sensitive, emotional topic that we can't even have the conversation, which means the same problems are going to
0: endure. And in your the case same- just so that we define what we're talking about, for the most part it's the kinds of racial discrimination or just outright criminalization of certain people based on the way that they look whether it's by police whether it's just by that wary stranger who's giving you the shifty eyes as they walk by you assuming that you're a bad person or that you're going to do something bad just by the way that you talk or walk or the kind of clothes that you're wearing am i am i getting that right that that's, that's, part one of
1: ang- that's one angle, right? I would actually... Um, it's really conversations about identities, right? We we mm-hmm. see right now with the Black Lives Matter movement, we see with the procedural injustices that are happening from police, that's a very um, tangible, um, horrifying ways in which um, the ways that we see people are directing, the ways we understand a person's identity alters our behaviors and expectations of that person yeah. from a systemic level. And so... Um, I'm going to be very, very brief about this because I don't, want to, I don't want to hijack the conversation. So when we say things like systemic racism, like people are like, ah, oh, that, that sounds like I don't – people will, will largely say like I don't hate people. I'm not calling people names. I'm not actively doing anything. So I, I don't feel like I'm a racist person, right? When, when we have to look at it, one, systemic racism is not necessarily your individual behavior. It's the way that we as a collective society treat people. And we all participate that in different ways, sometimes by not speaking out about certain things, about seeing things happening and not speaking out, not taking active efforts to subvert that, right? Um, And so when you start talking about things like systemic racism, that's one of the first things. And, you know, what's really challenging about this is I think the way – Let's, let's play it out. Let, let's, we're probably speaking to a largely white audience, right, if we're going yeah. to draw lines yeah. that way. Internationally,
0: right? uh, not just in the U.S., but, yep, I would say I've never done any surveys here, but I would expect anywhere between 70 to 80% of the people who are listening right now are white.
1: Yeah, and just so everyone knows, in case it matters, I am multiracial, so my mom is white, right? And so um, that gives me a particular lens into this conversation that's different than, than someone else. Um, I think the challenge is, is if we admit that our society is systemically racist and that we may participate in that, that creates this, oh, crap, what do I do about that, right? What do I do now? Um, if, we, if we reject that the society is systemically racist, then we have a problem of really understanding what's going on with people. We have to then label other people's experiences differently, mm-hmm. And so it creates this bind to where I imagine that it's really hard to say, hey, this is who we are and we have to change that. And the thing about it is I've been thinking about uh, a lot of this as I've been thinking about revolutions and, and nonviolent action and so on and so forth. It's so much easier to overthrow a government than it is to overthrow the beliefs of a culture. It's so much easier to overthrow a government than to overthrow the beliefs of a culture. This is why when we start talking about the war on terrorism, it's always fraught with problems, right? How do you overthrow the cultural beliefs of people that are leading to terrorist activities? It's so much easier to displace Saddam Hussein and get him hiding in a cave than to root out these belief systems that are causing people to treat others in different ways. And I think that's the long fight that we're in in this particular conversation because we, we can't look at the U.S. government and say it's the U.S. government's fault because at a, at a total institutional level, there's a lot of really great stuff happening in the U.S. We're not trying to overthrow the U.S. government, right? Um, institutional reform can be really challenging too because, it's, again, large parts of the system work, but enough don't that you have to rally action against that. So,
0: um, well, Can I tell you real quick where I get stuck? Please do. Oh, well, I, well, I haven't really joined the conversation. So I'm a US citizen. I've been in the US my whole life. I love this country, but I'm also very globally minded. And in fact, I'm starting to think of myself more as a global citizen than I am as a US citizen. Not mm-hmm. that either of those two are a primary lens through which I see the world. So mm-hmm. for me, I'm just speaking from my personal experience, when I see people talking about things that are happening, I mean, even in my own city, just outside of St. Paul, Minnesota. Philando Castillo uh, recently was murdered, basically, mm-hmm. by a police officer. It, it, was, uh, it was recorded on video. It's pretty clear that we have major things going on, and I see all these people talking about Black Lives Matter. And where my mind goes, even though the fact that this happened just about five miles away from where I grew up in St. Paul, I'm thinking, well, if Black Lives Matter, and they actually do, then what about the hundreds of people who were killed that same day in South Sudan who mm-hmm. are being oppressed and who are also black, and who have a who have a association a relationship with the United States. The United States basically created South Sudan and separated it from Sudan without going into all the history here, but that's where my mind goes and and it seems not wrong of me, but it seems like I would be uh, misappropriating the spirit of things if I were to point out to people, well, if that's true, if Black Lives Matter, and it does, then what are the implications for all these other things that are not happening in my country, in my city, where it's going on? That's one of the things that really gets me hung up. And I don't know if you have any suggestions there, but I'm, I'm just letting you know from my personal experience why I've been kind of quiet is because I don't need permission to speak. I just don't know because I want my dialogue and I want how I'm trying to bring conversations and people together to be productive, to be encouraging. I don't know how to do that yet. So I guess maybe I'll just have to figure that out my, on my well, own. I'm with help with people like you.
1: Well, see, that's, exi- that's exactly the type of conversation that I want us to be having, Right that's exactly the type of conversation to say, hey, what about this without it being like you're rejecting that we have a problem in the United States, right? We've become so polarized around this conversation where it's like, if you don't support the calls, or you say something different, then you're automatically invalidating and blah, 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 blah. We can go there. Um, I've heard the arguments. I've read the arguments. I've been a victim of some of the like. – I've had people yelling at me that I don't support like, things. I'm like, hold up. like let, let's, let's, let, let's settle down the hey, mm-hmm. Um Here's the thing. You're absolutely right what we're talking about is the needs of strangers, right? And from a philosophical background. So people may not know, I actually have uh, my graduate degree in philosophy and finishing my PhD in philosophy as well. And so this is one of those problems in that we can look at the enormity of um, challenges that happen in another nation's borders within those borders and say, what about those? Shouldn't we do something there and, um, displace our own need for taking care of our own neighbors and so on and so forth. Right. Um, I think it's true that all lives matter, right? All lives matter. And the other thing about it is, those lives in the Sudan matter as well. But what we have done for the last hundred or so years, longer than that, is we in the United States have been spending so much more time nation building in other places. And we haven't been doing that nation building inside our own borders, right? And I say that as a veteran as well. I've got a lot of things going on, guys. Sorry about that, but uh, I say that as <laughs> a veteran. A having rich goals, set of
0: experiences yeah. in your 36 years, man.
1: Having some, having been, having stood in the sand in Iraq, nation building with other nations. I'm like, there is a very valid question of like, why are we not spending this money on police reform? Why in the top, you know, in the if we really look at where we're spending our money. And we're really looking at where we rank as far as first world nations or whatever we want to call the top tier nations. We are 19th on the list as far as our human rights and civil rights and our society itself. We are not, we are a global superpower, but we are not at the top of the list, guys. And that's the thing is that we are not investing the time to build a nation that roots out some of these problems. And um, it would be great if we had a... um, global perspective of how to treat people. And we applied our energies that way. But from a policy and from a social action perspective, what we end up doing is not fixing our nation nor fixing that nation either. Right. And so let's start where we are. Let's start where, you know, let's start in our own backyards because we can fix that. Let's start with who we are and the people we know and say, yes, that problem is there. Let's solve this problem so that we can learn to solve bigger and greater problems. Because solving um, cross, cross-national cross problems is a considerably harder problem than solving intern like national problems.
0: Well, there's also a lot of hubris behind it, too. And, and I have a probably typical American mindset, which is, look at us! We're awesome! Everybody should be like us in a number of different ways. And so I think with all of the resources that we have available to us collectively as a nation. Can we do more? Is it appro- when is it appropriate for us to do more and to look outside of our borders and to look outside of our local community and try to stretch? Is it a stretch or is it just, as opposed to replacing what we would otherwise do, is it supplemental to it? I struggle with these things too. And for a lot of part, I think that what we could do as individuals or collectively would be supplemental, And not displace so much of the reform, so much of the changes that we need to have here. Of course, that's just based on my experiences, which are going to be very different. Other people are nodding their head like, yep, Joel. And other people are thinking, oh boy, how naive is he? What kind of experiences he had? Who knows? I mean, we'll leave the judgment out for now.
1: Well, here's the thing. I mean, we are multidimensional people living in a multidimensional society in a multidimensional world, Right. And what this means is that there's not one way, there's not, we, we don't just do one thing at a time. We can pursue um, in full 100% integrity, we can pursue um, reform within our society that makes sure that people not only are equal by the law, because that's the, that's the challenge in this conversation, is that um, from a legal perspective, if you just look at our legal freedoms, um, most of them are on the books such that um, all people are equal. But when you look at the procedural, the institutional, things like that, there's massive, the economic, the social, there, there are massive asymmetries in people's freedom within our own society. And so that, that's one thing that we can look at there. It's like we can pursue in 100% integrity our advancement of, of equality and justice and fraternity at the same time that we look across our borders and say, you know what? it is wrong that that many people are dying every day and we're not doing anything about it when we otherwise could. Hmm. So let's do something about that too. We can be in integrity with that. I think where we lose our personal responsibility and integrity is when we do neither.
0: If we would have had a conversation a month ago, your headspace would be entirely different and a lot of the events that have unfolded would have not happened yet. And so we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. I just want to say, wow, thank you. I, there were a couple of things that I think maybe we can integrate a little bit into this conversation, which for, so for one, you talk about flow charts. I know whether it's matrices and, and diagrams and flow charts, like you just love that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. going back to my corporate days when I used to be a business analyst and being in Microsoft Visio all the time, like I love flow charting processes and how the related procedures work. Is it possible, not that you're going to become this super policy wonk or try to solve everyone's problems with a flowchart, but for the things that we're talking about, at least maybe in your backyard in Portland, Oregon, could you could you use your mad flowchart skills to try to do a, some if-thens and create some kind of diagram, some kind of image where you can say, check it out. I'm not saying that we need to do all these things, but may I suggest... You look at this little waterfall or you look at these branches and you see visually what the implication is if you make this choice or maybe what would happen if we were to go down this road. Is that the kind of thing that you're interested in doing?
1: Yes, I think the, prob- the level of complexity of this problem is going to require visual thinking and visual presentation to solve. Right? We're not just going to solve it with a, with a, um, with a huge um, sea of words thrown at people. People are going to have to see the problem and see the ways in which you're going to do it. So yes, um, right now, my thoughts are mostly around giving a visual representation of it, it's combining crossing the ideas from Crossing the Chasm and Eugene Schwartz's um, um, level of awareness with some stuff from the military Wait, around... Crossing
0: the Chasm and Levels of Awareness? These are two
1: books? But Yes, Crossing the Chasm is the book. And Eugene Swartz from Breakthrough Advertising, he talks about levels of awareness. And there's some other stuff that I remember reading and absorbing from military intelligence stuff that I can't remember exactly where it is. But it basically looks at the person's hostility towards your message and how you might approach and and the different campaigns and strategies that you might use to engage with that person. So if that person is really, really hostile... Then you have an active choice in conversational in a conversational sort of way of not engaging with them at all or engaging with them on different terms than someone who's for instance a would be ally who's not who's not within your your sort of um, they haven't bought on the message you haven't mobilized them yet, but the ways in which you would approach a would be ally are different than the way that you would approach someone that's already hostile to the message right and so right now, a lot of my thinking is around for, Creating a diagram that shows based upon where someone where you suspect someone is, here are the different strategies and here are the different ways in which you might engage with that person so that you can one not lose your every time you talk to them right, but two triage your efforts right now a lot of my work is with would be allies right because um, allies are already in it right, um, but the would be allies I think are are being excluded from the conversation because of Um, just the way in which the conversation goes on. So, and then there's on the other side, there's would be hostiles, right? People that are just on the fence are not hostile yet, but they're also not a would be ally. So there's a different way we have to, we have to instigate and coordinate with a would be hostile that we, we wouldn't, if it were a would be
0: ally. So that's like, could you ask a would be ally for just some small help, just some small thing that they could do?
1: I think with would-be allies, it's largely getting them to actually start talking and engaging in the conversation, right? Um, Because I I think when they're allies, you can ask an ally. You can mobilize an ally, but you can't really mobilize a would-be ally because they're not like – they're like on the fence about how they feel about a certain thing, right? And so that is getting – pulling them into the fold and seeing their humanity, seeing what their objections are if you had to look at it from a customer model. And saying, okay, based upon their worldview, based upon their objections, based upon what's going on with them, here's the best way to include them in there. Because I think in that would-be ally and would-be hostile place, there's really an ignorance of facts and there's an ignorance of perspectives, right? And so largely that's an educational component within there. Um, so that's largely what I'm thinking through now, and you can imagine that there's going to be a diagram <laughs> and and flowchart for that. Um, just because I think part of the challenge is, um, this is going to get me in all loads of trouble. Um, people who are not, who are still too tender about what's going on, don't need to be on the front lines with would-be allies and would-be hostiles. Right? It's not going to do them any good. It's not going to do the, that movement any good whatsoever, because they're going to explode and blow up and things like that. They're just too tender at that point. It's like, going back to my military days, you don't take a shaken and broken soldier and put them on the front line, right? Um, you find other things, you, you heal them up and then you might put them out there, but you don't, you don't do that. And I think, unfortunately, we see a lot of that happening in that people are just not prepared for the level of emotional resiliency they're going to need and level of, of action that's going to need to be able to do that. And again, I'm going to get emails about that one, but that's okay.
0: That's uh, fine. I hope we get lots of emails, both <laughs> you and I, from this conversation, people, whether they agree or disagree or want to add a voice to the conversation, if it's respectful and honest and not intended to cause strife and
1: great, please do email me. Seriously, yeah. please do. I Let's mean, email, if you wrong, Charlie at productive There we go. Open Joel,
0: all day. Joel's dot for those who have never listened to us before and don't know what the email address is. Dude, we, uh, Oh my goodness.
1: So, oh, I do want to say real quick though. Yeah, yeah, For any complex problem, you need visual thinking and presentation to solve it. So whether we're talking about you know, social movements or whether we're talking about business problems or whether we're talking about um, the, the process flow of your restaurant, like if it's a complex problem and you're seeing that you're not getting anywhere and you keep talking about it, stop talking about it, start drawing it. Um, Back of the Napkin by Dan Rome is a really great book to help out with some different frameworks and ways to visualize that particular problem yeah. huge huge thing to do
0: okay one more thing I'm going to link to the productive flourishing book recommendations and all the subcategories that you have because you read a lot and you've distilled it down in really cool ways and all things from mindfulness to creativity to productivity that's a great resource Other things that we did talk about that are amazing resources that you are a part of or responsible for, the Creative Giant Show. So for people who are listening to us they are like, I like this Charlie guy. I would like to hear more of him talk, perhaps solo or perhaps with other people. The (laughs) Creative Giant Show is one of my favorite podcasts. Most recently, uh, the episode you did with Courtney Carver, uh, Be More With Less, episode 92. Mm -hmm. She was fantastic. And you just built beautifully... On what she was saying, it was it was just a verbal dance that was gorgeous. To- Courtney is amazing; she really is. She really is. And also, start finishing. So your upcoming book that we also didn't get a chance to talk about. Just for people who are listening, I got to see back at an event called Simple Rev 2015, Charlie ran a workshop about start finishing. Now, this was in uh, productivity, creativity space, and the work that you do. Wow, first of all. And if there's a book that's based on what I heard and what I observed and the changes that I made, people are going to be really interested in that. So. Just doing a little bit of foreshadowing for you, Charlie, so we make sure that people understand that maybe some of the things that we thought that we would be talking about that we haven't spoken about, your world is enormous and it's worth getting lost in or at least knee deep in for all kinds of great reasons. All right. Is there anything that we can talk about that you'd like people to know? I think the
1: thing that I want people to understand and take away, and this is this is really what I'm working on more now, is how to embrace the multidimensionality and how to embrace these different aspects of our lives um, into our work itself. Because I think for so long, um, largely due to the Industrial Revolution, we have productized ourselves in the sense where we go to work, we just do our work things, and then we go home and we do our home things. And then sometimes we do our hobby things as part of the home things. But I think we're looking at a world where we can actually see people's humanity and see people's different dimensions show up. And so though we've spent most of this call talking about social movements and changing the conversation around identity and race and class in our society, and those are really heavy topics, I understand that. There's still a point in which um, we can say – we can we can tie that in to talk about how does that relate to writing a book on productivity? How does that relate to these other things? And Build a cohesive narrative because I think for creative people especially, where we get so stuck and stymied, Joel, what I've experienced is when there's this part of ourselves that we don't get to express because we can't find a place for it and then we end up getting creatively constipated and then we end up like just getting all wrapped around in in axles around that rather than saying, okay, this is a part of myself that – I do want to express what are the channels in which I might exp- express it and how do I weave that into a um, a total experience that makes me feel like I'm showing up in the world fully, fully human as opposed to always hiding behind some um, wall of what seems to be socially acceptable and easily understandable, right? Um as Joel you know, kind of mentioned in, in sort of our admin notes, I can be, especially when I'm a little bit more scatterbrained for being sick, I can be especially challenging to talk to sometimes because there's a range of things in which I might talk about or I might jump from this one conversation about a to-do list, which is really important to me, to something around you know, somewhere completely different and unexpected about how Aristotle said something about expression and blah, blah, blah. All I would want to say there is look inside yourself and find those things that really matter to you. And instead of figuring out whether you should express those, spend more time figuring out how you're going to express those things. All right. That's just what I would want people to sort of be thinking about and, and taking away.
0: Well, I know how you're expressing yourself is under a major state of transition right now. But as far as the where goes... Whether it's right now or in the future, where would you like people to go, Charlie, to get more about you and f- and from you?
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with productive flourishing because it's all gonna end up back there. So productiveflourishing.com. Still, all roads lead there. Um, there may be other roads that, that lead other places too, but you know I'm on sabbatical right now, so we'll figure that out as it goes.
0: All right. So wow. First, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what shifted? or clicked for you during the chat you just heard. For me, I've really been more vocal in conversations with friends and commentary on social media about how I see events and experiences of all kinds, but especially the traditionally harder to talk about ones. As Charlie mentioned, his goal, and I have to say a new goal of mine, is to make talking about any facet of your individual identity or our collective identity as open as, I don't know, uh, so how about that favorite local sports team? You know, that kind of chatter. Just go jump into the show notes for this episode. They're at slash SASM105. So you can see where to connect with Charlie, links to all the stuff we talk about, uh, top timestamps, takeaways, quotes, how you might add your voice where it will do a lot of good. You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community at joelzeslowski.com slash support. As Charlie and I both mentioned this episode, we want to engage you directly and in a larger sense. So please email him with your thoughts about our chat. He's at com or on Twitter, at Charlie Gilkey. His last name, by the way, is G-I-L-K-E-Y. My email is joel at joelzeslowski.com, and I am on Twitter, at Joel Zeslowski. My last name, spelled Z-A-S-L-O-F-S-K-Y. Charlie and I, we are relying on you to share our conversation and broaden it in your unique way. So if you got something out of this episode maybe just generally dig the show, share it with others who will appreciate it, or even better sometimes, be challenged by it. I'll be with you again in two weeks, building a bit on this episode's conversation as I talk about the difference between capital S Social Security and lowercase S Social Security. It's going to be a funky one, unpredictable and very action-oriented, I might add. For now, You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslowski. Now go simplify something, hug someone, or get your sexy spreadsheet on.